You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 11, episode nine. Religion is an attempt to tarry with that which is non-reducible to materiality. My work has kind of moved in the direction of saying that the signifier God is a type of signifier of a fundamental antagonism at the heart of all reality. Peter Rollins is an author, philosopher, storyteller, producer, and public speaker. Peter gained his higher education from Queen's University, Belfast, where he earned degrees in scholastic philosophy, political theory, social criticism, and post-structural thought. He's the author of numerous books, including Insurrection, The Idolatry of God, and The Divine Magician. In today's episode, I talk with Peter about the unexpected relationship between loss and transcendence, or what he terms as a fundamental antagonism at the heart of reality. This conversation is a deep dive into philosophy and religion, so I've included references in the show notes to all of the books and historical figures mentioned. You'll find a few links there as well to previous Makers and Mystics artist profiles where we cover a few of the philosophers and mystics from this conversation. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Peter on how art informs our urge for transcendence. Go to patreon.com slash makersandmystics to learn more. And lastly, I wanna give a shout out to Four Finger Recording Artist, Thousand Dollar Movie for their musical contribution to this episode. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast, my friend. Oh, it's great to be a guest. I'm very honored to be asked. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, I can almost smell the Belfast air through the internet here. It's just making me long to get back to that Irish countryside of my ancestors. So, oh, yeah. Are you, have you got Irish blood in yet? I do. I do have some Irish blood. My last name is Roach. And so I was told that that was the rebellious community in Ireland. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm terrible at knowing those kind of things, but that uh, sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I've been following your work for several years and I've read your book, How Not to Speak of God, as well as just kept up with some of your thoughts on pyrotheology, atheism for Lent. But I thought a great place to start might just be a simple question. I'd be curious to know, what are you reading lately or what is something that's inspiring you in this season of life? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I maintain quite a wide interest um, some things I watch and read and engage in just to kind of like uh, out of interest that are not my speciality. Some I've got a real interest sometimes in watching things that I kind of see there's a, an issue in, but I like it like a Sudoku. I kind of like want to kind of, you know, hone my skills while watching from flat earthers to creationists to whatever it is to kind of like engage and, and find what's good in those things and also find, try to locate the central issues. But in terms of my reading at the moment, I'm actually rereading a book by Alanka Sapanchik called What is Sex? Uh, she's a great writer. The thinkers that I've engaged in most closely in recent years are people like 
Todd McGowan, who um, has written a number of great books for people who are listening or watching. Uh, he wrote a great book called Capitalism and Desire mm. that is highly recommended. Also a great book called Enjoying What You Don't Have. And Richard Boothby, he's just come out with an amazing book called Embracing the Void, uh, which actually is right in your wheelhouse. I don't know if you've considered him as a guest, but I really recommend him. His, the original title of the book was um, Is Nothing Sacred, which I loved. Oh, yeah. Loved that title because of the double play, you know, like, of course, is nothing sacred, but also is the nothing sacred. And that's what the book's about. In fact, that's the best book I've read in, re in the last year. It's the best book I've read on mysticism, religious experience. And it's one of the best books I've ever read on that subject, actually, you know, but absolutely brilliant. Yeah, well, you've you've certainly sold me on it now. I'm sure he'll be getting an email from our team here shortly. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, you'll love him. He's an incredible guy. Incredible. So he actually published two books at the same time. One is a memoir, which details the loss of his son to suicide. Mm. And he talks about that experience and mourning that and also that how that influenced his philosophy and then at the same time this embracing the void book and they're both very interconnected so i think your audience would really uh, enjoy listening to him yeah absolutely well we have a creative collective and we do a book club every other month and this month we've been going through nick cave and sean o'hagan's faith hope and carnage and there's a lot in that book, of course, about Nick Cave's experience with his son's suicide. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it's interesting, the relationship between grief and transcendence that that book in particular, and it sounds like perhaps some of his work as well, it's, it's interesting how those two things, though they might seem unlikely, they're connected in some pretty intimate ways. Yes, very, very deeply. I mean, if, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, I'm sure, because my, my most recent work, uh, hopefully my, my, I, can, I might even be able, I might be old enough to say my mature work now. <laughs> I finally, finally getting to an age where I might be saying my, my mature work is, um, is really about lack and, and the, the nature and the relationship, the nature of lack and the relationship of lack to transcendence. Mm. And so those, the connections of loss, um, obviously connect with the theme of lack and that lack uh, I think connects very deeply with the idea of transcendence and uh, so yeah there's an interesting relationship there to unpick. Yeah well let's lean into that a little bit then talk to me about this work of yours especially if it's your mature work let's let's see what we have here but talk to me about the nature of lack and loss and longing and how you see that connecting with transcendence. Yeah so I mean, I'll give you, but Mike, you actually, before we hit record, you showed my first book, the first book I ever wrote, which was How Not to Speak of God. And that book, which was kind of like taking some of the themes of my PhD and kind of like putting them into a more readable form, uh, was very influenced by mysticism. Mm -hmm. and, and right at the beginning, uh, I was interested in what we cannot speak of. And, and perhaps one way to approach a definition of religion and I know your listeners will know that that can be a very fraught <laughs> yes. thing to be able to define but if I was to kind of put it in a nutshell I might say that religion is an attempt to tarry with that which is non-reducible to materiality. Oh that's good. 
So if, I, if, I, if we use that as a, as a broad category for religion, so we have materi- materiality, material reality, religions of various kinds help us in different ways to orient ourselves to something that is otherwise than being, something like Emmanuel Levinas would say. So um, now how we articulate this otherwise than being becomes very interesting and, and how we connect with that in liturgy and in art uh, and in the intellectual life is fascinating. But what I would say is that the traditional mystical approach is one in which, um, and I think this is encapsulated very well by the philosopher Jean-Luc Marion, who would say that the mystical orientation is to something which you feel you have encountered that you cannot conceptualize. So it's a feeling of saturation. It's a feeling of being overwhelmed that draws out a certain awe and a certain impenetrable short-circuiting. That So the signifier God doesn't signify something. It's really a signifier that signifies that which is otherwise than being that, that which overwhelms us. And, and one mystic uses the example of a ship sunken in the depths of the ocean. The ocean contains the ship and the ship contains the ocean. But while the ship only contains a fragment of the ocean, the ocean contains all of the ship. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's something very profoundly interesting in that. And we can as I say, kind of pick it apart. But I'm more interested actually in a form of experience in which we encounter not an excess, but rather we encounter some sort of uncanny nothingness that is at the core of everything. And I don't think this has been so well theorized. Um, I don't think, I think within the confessional church, for example, mysticism has mostly been drawn to the idea of encountering an excess, something substantive Mm -hmm. um, that we call God. And my work has kind of moved in the direction of saying that the signifier God is a type of signifier of a fundamental antagonism at the heart of all reality. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I've never heard it put that way before, a fundamental antagonism at the heart of all reality. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so it's a kind of a conflictual ontology. It's an ontology of contradiction. And this is where Hegel and Lacan come in as very important figures because Hegel, although he's one of the most important philosophers, uh, I think, you know, there are some people who would argue that in the analytic tradition, but generally he's considered, even if you don't like him, one of the most formidable philosophers. There's a question Karl Barth once asked, which was, why did Hegel never become the Thomas Aquinas of Protestantism? Mm-hmm. Right? That's a great question. It is a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. And Barth <laughs> kind of goes on to kind of give a potential answer. But the question is the one that I think is more interesting, because I think that Hegel should, in one sense, be the Thomas Aquinas for the next Reformation, and it hasn't happened yet. And if you read Hegel carefully, you find within Hegel this notion that that we are animated by contradiction. We are animated by a kind of antagonism at the very heart of us. Now, psychoanalysis is very connected to this. So if I use the example of that of a symptom. A symptom is a contradiction within us. It's a compromise formation. So for example, you might grind your teeth because you want to shout at somebody, 
but you also are afraid of shouting at them. So the symptom is the grinding of your teeth, which, which gives you a substitute satisfaction because you can kind of release some of your aggression and anger, but in a way that kind of allows you to uh, maybe remain in a relationship with somebody. So maybe you're afraid your boss would fire you if you shouted at them or your partner would leave you. So you want to say something, but you can't. Um, this contradiction generates a symptom, a compromise formation. And in analysis, you know, you may come to see that. And then, of course, what happens is that then maybe connects to something earlier where you realize, oh, I never thought I could speak in my family. I, I always wanted to say something and also I couldn't say it. So that contradiction resolves by going to a deeper contradiction. And then eventually you get to the deepest contradiction, which is us. You know, we, we never are able to say what we want to say, right? We, there's something about being human where, where our speech is always insufficient. We communicate and we miscommunicate at the same time. And what happens here is every contradiction is kind of like overcome by going deeper into a contradiction. And for Hegel, he ultimately says that eventually we we try to always overcome contradiction and eventually absolute knowledge, he calls it absolute knowledge, is when we realize that contradiction is woven into everything. And the cure is not to overcome contradiction, but to embrace it. I think that, that he connects that with Christianity. Mm. He, he sees this ontology of contradiction within Christology. Mm -hmm. uh, but that I don't think we have adequately interrogated. Mm -hmm. Where are you in that process of thought at this point in relation to Hegel's conclusions? Yeah, so I think uh, uh, this, this is profoundly insightful. So if I could for a second connect standard mystical thought with Freud, for a second, with Freud's early theory of seduction. So as some of you who hear this and will know, initially Freud was trying to work out what is trauma, what evokes trauma in, in a subject. And early on, he thought that trauma was related to an excessive excitation from an external event that was usually sexual in nature or threatening in nature, so, so death or sex, right? That, mm -hmm. that the infant experienced but could not symbolize, right? They, they weren't able to symbolize the experience. So trauma results from an excess of an event which cannot be digested within the symbolic realm. Now, interestingly, that has a lot of interesting insight and value. There's a psychoanalyst beyond, and he talks about how uh, an infant experiences what he calls beta elements. And a beta element is something that they cannot conceptualize. They can't render into a signifier. And he calls the parents, let's say the mother, the mother, he says, has an alpha function. And the alpha function is to take the beta element and to put it into language. So say the mother holds the child, they rock the child and they say, it's okay, you know, you're just hungry. Oh, you're just tired. All you need to do is sleep. If you get some sleep, you'll feel better. And so what the parent is doing is they're taking the beta element, they're there they're, and they're what Beyond calls alphabetizing it, right? So to, to make the beta element into an alpha element, so they're alphabetizing, which I love because it's, it's basically creating a signification for the event. But then Freud started to question the seduction theory, and he questioned it for like three reasons. Um, one is 
some people are traumatized and we can't really find a particularly traumatizing external event. Mm-hmm. Secondly, some people have had externally traumatizing events, but it hasn't resulted in a pathology. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, there's a latency between the event happening and the, the pathology arising. There's like sometimes like there can be five, 10 years between these, these events. So this, uh, this brought him to start to theorize in a different way. Mm-hmm. Now, just very quickly, I'm going to jump to Lacan here because uh, he says it very, very well. Lacan basically argues that what is traumatic is not so much an event, an overwhelming event, but what's traumatic is the unknown desire that lies within it. That, mm-hmm. that the, the earliest question we have as, as infants is when we ask, what does the other want of us? There's something enigmatic about the other's desire. Sometimes the parental caregiver feeds us. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they get things wrong. Sometimes they're frustrated. Sometimes they seem to love us so much. And sometimes they're distracted. And the infant starts to go like, what am I for the other? And how am I desirable to the other? And there, the questioning arises because they experience an enigmatic dimension to the other. And this is very central in French psychoanalysis, is the idea that the most terrifying and the most exciting dimension of the other is that dimension of the unknown within the other. Mm-hmm. It's what horrifies us, the, the unknown desire or jouissance of the other, but it's also what appeals to us. And this, this dimension, um, I want to kind of like say that in an equivalent way, there is a sense in which all of reality has a quantum oscillation to it and a kind of lack. And that's precisely what the, the, the true religious uh, gesture is about tarrying with this unknown dimension. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the answer to what does the parent want is the parent doesn't know, right? Hegel famously said the mystery of the Egyptians are mysteries to the Egyptians as well, uh, which is, you know, the idea that we're looking for, you know, UFOs, aliens might have the answer. But if, if we ever encounter aliens, if Hegel's right, they're going to be divided as well. You know, they, they won't know what they want. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there's so much in what you've been saying that I want to comment on, but I love this question, what am I for the other? Mm -hmm. Because I think at the heart of that, we arrive at an existential question. You know, that that may be a question for the parent from the child in your analogy, but I think that that quickly goes to a religious question. It goes to that existential question of what am I for the other? Yes. And then as well, you were talking about how the unknown both appeals to us and yet at the same time, it terrifies us. And that's something we've been talking a lot about on the podcast lately is how the posture of the artist in particular kind of gazes over that press into that void, into that unknown, and tends to be driven forward by that terror and that curiosity. And I think, you know, the different temperaments from person to person influence what comes out of that experience. But I think that even in our discussion on art and the urge for transcendence, I think that precipice there of the unknown and how it appeals to us, how it awakens curiosity, and yet at the same time, it terrifies us. That's where I see all of these things coming together. Yes, absolutely. And this brings us to the very heart of, of love. I mean, um, mm-hmm. if, to give, a, a, again, a crude definition of love, 
uh, using Lacan. Lacan says, um, what it says, uh, love is giving something that you do not have to someone who does not want it. <laughs> wow. What's beautiful about this is, you know, we, we can, in inverted commas, love somebody because they remind us of ourselves. So the love and the, the imaginary, or we can love someone because of their symbolic value. Maybe they're a father figure, mother figure up to the, the symbolic realm. And we can love people because of their identity and what they do. But potentially what love is at its core and what Lacan is touching on whenever he says love is giving what you do not have to someone who does not want it is that what you do not have is your desire, right? What we do not have is lack. Whenever you desire, you desire something because you do not have it, right? So we have this dimension within us that is lacking, that we feel is lack. And that's what you give to the other. And in many ways, that's not what the other wants, because we want the, you know, we often in dating apps, you want to find someone who's the same interests as you and who can make you whole, can kind of make your life richer and better. And the last thing you want is someone's lack, right? And, but, <laughs> but weirdly in love, we, it is an openness to the lack in the other. And whenever the miracle happens, whenever you share each other's lack, you, you create a home, a space, a dwelling, a, a, a clearing in your in your being for the lack of the other. Mm-hmm. Like if this is right, and this is where Boothby's work is incredibly important. If that's right, the injunction to love your enemy mm. is and and if if and if we go with this interesting kind of late biblical idea that to love your enemy and to love your neighbor and particularly your enemy is is to love God, not that you love your neighbor and you love God, right? But you just you love your neighbor and that's that's how you know you love God. That might mean that that is the impossible injunction to remain open to the uncanny, terrifying abyss of the other's desire and not shut yourself down from it. And it's an incredibly impossible and wonderful injunction that, um, yeah, that fascinates me. Wow. (laughs) Well, I want to go back to what you were talking about with these sort of inherent contradictions that you talked about. And again, going back to a religious or existential question in that, do you think that's where this age-old Protestant discussion over free will and predestination kind of find themselves in the middle of that antagonism or in the middle of that contradiction? Is that is this sort of a bridge forward with some of that discussion there? Yeah, oh, that's a good point. Like, yeah, because if you look at, uh, like, famously Immanuel Kant um, in his critique of pure reason, he famously has, he critiques reason, right? He wants to push reason, pure reason, as far as it will go. And when he pushes pure reason as far as it will go, he says it creates antinomies. And the antinomies are, one of them is freedom and determinism. He says pure reason will get you to freedom and it will get you to, to determinism, <laughs> right? Right. And pure reason will get you to God and no God. And pure reason will get you to the universe has, has a beginning and the universe has no beginning. And uh, the other one was f- pure reason will give will get you to the point where you say that uh, there is something indivisible about the, the, as soon as you go down far enough into the nature of being and it'll be something you cannot divide and also that everything is infinitely divisible, right? So he, he articulates these antinomies very, very well. And then his conclusion is that pure reason kind of doesn't work 
And it doesn't work not because it doesn't get us somewhere. It gets us to too many places. <laughs> um, and then he goes you know, into practical reason and whatever. He, Hegel comes after Kant. And Hegel's genius insight <laughs> is that he, he agrees with Kant. And he goes, yeah, the pure reason gets us to antinomies. And then Hegel just pushes it and he mm-hmm. turns it up to 11. And he says, what if reason is not limited what if what if reality is divided <laughs> and so this is this is not a limit to our reason this is an insight into reality itself now this move is a move from epistemological humility to ontological humility oh that's good and yeah so a lot of i mean there's religious philosophers like uh Merrill westphal and others who who might talk about epistemological humility and i did in my early work that you know we, we have to realize that we don't know everything we can't know the fundamental nature of reality da 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 structuralism whatever but hegel goes no our unknowing is an insight into reality it's 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 the highest insight that that it's not that i don't know reality it's that reality doesn't know itself i am reality <laughs> discovering reality's unknown dimension of itself yeah, <laughs> and, that's good <laughs> yeah and bam you know that's fundamentally a great insight i think yes that's wonderful so a couple of questions here when we began to talk about the unknown and we began to talk about the curiosity and the terror Mm-hmm. Your response included a statement about love. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that was very telling in some ways because it leads us back to the discussion of the mystics and even what lies at the heart of the mystic. And, you know, so many of the, whether it's Meister Eckert or, you know, Hildegard of Bingen, any of these figures that we're familiar with, it seems at the heart of that mystical experience or that mystical pursuit might be a better way of saying it was going beyond knowledge about something and entering into the experience of something. Mm -hmm. And it seems like at the heart of it, that would be their conclusion is that love is at the heart of the universe. Love is at the heart of reality. And then they sought perhaps to overcome some of the trauma in their life just to be at one or to find union with that love. I'd love to hear your comments on the mystic and love and union and all that we're talking about. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Meister Eckhart, who you know is arguably you know the greatest of the mystics. Um, and I often exclude him because I think he's so good that this <laughs> this notion of the of the nothing is is within Eckhart. Because some right. mystics, I think, and it's difficult, right? One of the difficult things within mysticism is there is sometimes an overcoming of alienation. This idea of overcoming alienation of of oneness, etc. Et I am very you know, and I can, I, I, I'm going to give you my answer without the working out, which is of no value. So we can do the working out later if we want. But, but if I go straight to the boring conclusion, I want to say that, that there's, and this is a very Hegelian point, is that there is no overcoming of alienation. That alienation is an inherent part of reality. And the kind of the cure or salvation or whatever is, is a type of embrace of this alienation. Now, this does connect with love because in the definition of love I was giving earlier, if love is in a way this, in a way miraculous kind of space in which we provide a harbor for each other's lack, not fill, not fill it, not fill it, whatever, but we provide a harbor for each other's lack and love in a way is an openness to that lack in the other 
then love is the highest, but love is not the overcoming of an alienation or a separation. Love is an embrace of it. That's so good. Yeah, and, and I see this in, in well, obviously I kind of see it in everything because I think, but, but I do like if, <laughs> in different registers, I go like, what, what is the name for this in biology? Well, well evolution, the non-at-oneness of the, the organism which creates diversity. What is the name of this in politics? Democracy, the non-at-oneness of the social body that creates civilization. Like, so for example, I think it was Adorno who defined civilization. You know the way there's a question of is society full of individuals or is society a kind of like uh, something that transcends the individual? It's a collective. And it's very hard. Again, pure reason gets you to either of those. <laughs> Through pure reason, you can say there is no society. There are just individuals. Or there is society of which the individual is immersed. And But actually, Adorno says, no, society is the the contradiction of these. That's exactly what... <laughs> but then, uh, what, what is the name of this in mathematics? Well, it's Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Right, where mathematics has true propositions that can't be proven. And in, in physics, what is it? Well, we have particle geality and determinacy. So in these different areas, there's names for it, but what is the ultimate name for it? My argument would be the death of God, the crucified Christ, right? The, the, the ultimate move is the finite and the infinite, that which is eternal, God dying. There's something in the crucifixion, and I think Kierkegaard got this deeply. There's something in the crucifixion which is the the embrace of pure contradiction. It's so good. <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm chuckling over here just because I'm resonating with what you're saying, but my mind is firing off into so many directions. You know, I'm thinking about how does this play out into the conversations on duality and union and dualistic thinking and, you know, some of those thoughts. And then I'm also thinking of often you've heard God referred to as the uncreated creator. There's this sense of nothingness and everything happening all at once. And I love bringing that, of course, to the incarnation, being sort of the material and the immaterial coming together in this one act of sacrificial love, I guess you'd say. Yeah. One other thing that you that you mentioned is the, and, and this is something I've been thinking about, writing about, studying lately, is individuality and the need to belong and how both of these things are present particularly for the makers and mystics community, which would be predominantly artists and creatives, how individuality and the need to belong play out in our lives because those can be very contradictory realities. And yet at the same time, they're both simultaneously at play inside of us. You know, we, especially for the creative types, we have this need to express the uniqueness of our personhood. And yet at the same time to identify with a community that that sees and recognizes and perhaps welcomes us for the lack that we have, yes. you know, or welcomes us in that space. And, you know, that's very interesting in the current American cultural context right now with what appears to be so many camps and so many divisions of tribalism in some ways. But I wonder what your thoughts are on this individuality and the need to belong. Yeah. I think, I mean, that is a good example of maybe an, another kind of antinomy uh, where your know, pure reason can get us to, you know, you can argue that everything you do is kind of a reflection of the other. Jean-Paul Sartre once said, very brilliantly, he kind of said um, that, you know, if you, if only, if the only music you listen to is basically 
what's popular um, and you only ever buy the greatest hits or whatever, um, then you... Uh, your your music taste is really not your own like it's it's really the others right you're just listening because everyone else is listening so uh this i got this i listened to a podcast called why theory todd mcgowan does and he talks about this in his last podcast if anyone wants to go and listen to to more about sart on this but you know in one sense you can say oh everything i do is influenced by the desire of the other right um but also you can kind of come to this you know, try to argue another point and go, but there's something about the individual that's that, that's making that choice, that's going out and buying one greatest hit and not the other. Um, again, you, one could say, to kind of put it into a Freudian sense for a second, imagine the superego is kind of like uh, society and community and the id is your own kind of desires. The ego is the symptom that, ma that, that, that arises out of that contradiction. So in a similar way, I think psychoanalytically, you would say, if someone asks, what is the subject? The psychoanalyst might say, the subject is precisely what arises out of the contradiction that is individuality and community. There's something of a type of rupture, antagonism that's created from this kind of conflict, and that's the subject. So the subject isn't really the ego the subject isn't your conscious sense of self. The subject is is what arises out of the very um, the very problem that you've just described. <laughs> Well, I want to ask you one last question before we end our time, and it's simply this. What kind of trouble are you going to be causing next, and where can we keep up with Peter Rollins from here? Oh, I, I love that question. I want to, uh, hopefully I can <laughs> cause some trouble. Um, yeah, what am I, so I'm writing a, a book. I've been, I stopped writing. I wrote six books, and then I kind of stopped for 10 years, and I've just picked up again because it took me, that amount of time to articulate what we're talking about today. Um, the working title is The Unknowing God. And unfortunately, I found out that Richard Boothby was also working on a book called Unknowing God. So I might have to change the title because I, I <laughs> maybe I heard him say it or maybe it's, you know, what do they call it when two things evolve in two different places? It's just yeah, kind of the collective consciousness, yeah, collective so maybe, unconsciousness. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I might, I might change it to the hysterical God, but the reason why I call it that is, you know, whenever Paul saw this, this altar that said agnostos theos, and he said it's the altar to the unknown God, I kind of thought to myself, well, you can do a Freudian reading of that because agnostos theos literally means to the unknown God, but you can also read it literally as the, 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 uh, as the agnostic God, the God who doesn't know, the uh, not unknown God, but the unknowing God. So the book itself is really exploring this notion of a fundamental unknowing at the heart of reality. I look at that in terms of uh, physics, uh, in terms of political reality, cultural reality, and then in, in religion. So that's what I'm working on. Uh, it'll take me a wee while to finish that. Uh, yeah. but, uh, and then I'm just doing my usual. I mean, actually, I do monthly seminars that used to be for my patrons only. But uh, this year, I'm making that free for everybody on my YouTube channel. So once a month, I give uh, a live seminar on YouTube. And uh, that's where I kind of explore these ideas. 
That's brilliant. Well, now that I know that, I'm going to be attending for sure. Okay, but, uh, thank you. <laughs> this is this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me. And uh, I'd love to keep in touch, man. I love your thoughts. I love where you're headed. And, uh, you know, I, it, it really resonates with what we're doing here in Makers and Mystics. Oh, thank you. Listen, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate an ongoing connection here. Hopefully we can have many more conversations and hopefully in person as well. So thank you. And thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. If you've been inspired by this or other Makers and Mystics episodes, please consider becoming a monthly patron to help us continue our work of advocating for the arts. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and see the show notes of this episode for links to today's guest. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. Mm-hmm.